0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Vela News Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Delaney, and I am excited to introduce our brand new Editor-in-Chief, Daniel Benson. Dan is joining us from Oxford, England. How are you, sir? Good to see you.
1: I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Thank you very much for the welcome. How are you?
0: I'm doing just fine. Now, many of you listeners know Daniel Benson. You at least know his byline because you've been reading him for years on years on a site called Cycling News where we were. You were there for 14 years. Dan, am I getting my math correct there?
1: Uh, I think so, yeah. So April 2008.
0: All right. And then the last seven or so in the driver's seat as editor-in-chief. And we are happy to have you on board uh, the good ship VeloNews now. So today I want to talk you know, mostly bike racing like we do every week on this show, but also want to talk a little bit about uh, Daniel Benson, the man, the myth, the legend behind... The byline. So, perhaps you could paint a picture for our listeners as to where you are at this moment. Where, where in the world? You know, as you know, you know, many of us Americans are geographically challenged. So we know where England is, but I, you know, many of us would be hard pressed to to put Oxford on the map.
1: Sure, Oxford's about um, an hour or so from London. So, um pretty historical city. I'm in an Airbnb with the. Uh, rest of the Velo European team. It's the first time we've got together. Uh, it's the first time actually that a couple of the members of the team, I think Jim and Andy, have never actually met before. Um, of course, I know Scythe from working on Cycling News together for a number of years. But yeah, we thought it was a good idea just to catch up, you know, before the, the the real start of the the proper season. Put down some plans. Talk about some race coverage for the year. What we want to do. What we don't want to do. What you yeah, know. For our, for our readers, sorry, what's going to be the big kind of themes and, and races that, that need covering off. But yeah, so right now we're just outside, well, just outside the, the very centre of, of Oxford uh, in a place called Jericho, uh, which is a place actually where I used to, pretty close to where I used to live about, you yeah, know, maybe seven or eight years ago. I used to live pretty close to here. But yeah, it's a, it's a lovely part of the world.
0: West of London. I think so. I'm
1: terrible with John Peter. Your guess is pretty much as good as mine. But yeah, it's, I think it's north northwest of London. Yeah, that'll do.
0: <laughs> so so tell me about these plans. What what are you and uh, the crew most excited about for, for this road season? And just, just to clarify, you know, before you know, Saive O'Shea uh, is the veteran reporter who lives on Isle of Man, home of a certain Mark Cavendish. Uh, Jim Cotton's there uh, in London. And then our man Andy Hood, Euro Eurohoodie, has uh, uh, been calling Leon Spain home for the better part of two decades now so that's that's the crew there with you what are, what, are, what are you guys fired up about for for this coming season
1: I think we're just looking forward to kind of you know continuing the work that Valerius has been doing you know, online for the last few years really I mean it's a great title it's got a rich history I think it's think like years old and it's got an incredible legacy and at the moment we're just we're just really just talking through like themes that we want to cover races that we think are going to be really important so even this week we have um peter cousins in tour of provence and we have sophie smith over at the tour of amand so we're going to get some excellent coverage from there i'm sure but we're just looking down the line in terms of thinking you know one of the big races that are on the horizon of course you've got the classics you've got the Giro you've got the tour and the world championships all the way over in Australia in you know the in the autumn but and of course yeah can't forget the 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 women's tour de France of course that follows just after the men's this year's too so um we haven't really kind of put together a proper coverage plan we've literally just had you know dinner and we've only been together for like three or four hours but at the moment we're just kind of looking at strategy and so on and so forth, from what what the Velo News reader wants to get from the site over the next twelve months. That's the that's the kind of big big reason as to why we're meeting.
0: Sure, and you are a working machine. You've just been on staff officially for two days, and and the site is already filled with Daniel Benson stories. A transfer analysis piece uh, has been going gangbusters. Um, it's, it's surprising to see how many writers are still you know, the futures are uncertain. I mean, I guess that's part and parcel of being a pro bike racer, um, not knowing what your job's going to be in a year or two. But does it seem like there's uh, a tighter job market now than in previous years? I think every year
1: is different. And every year in terms of the transfer market, there's always like a set number of themes that are running through them. So so typically, you know, you look at the last few years, you know, taking COVID aside, there's always going to be like this one or two one one or two marquee riders whether it's your Bernal or your Alaphilippe or your Chris Froome it kind of holds up the market and everyone kind of stalls and waits to see what the other team are going to do but this year there aren't that many huge huge superstars on the market and that's no disrespect to like Richard Carapaz and Mark Cavendish and and Tom Dumoulin and as he wrote today Tom Pidcock but there's no one there that's going to kind of Alter the market as we as we see it. You know, no one there that you're going to build an entire roster around at, at, at present. So it's no real surprise that you've got two, three hundred riders or so that are out of contract, both from World Tour and and, and just below. Um, but it's going to be really interesting to see who kind of moves first and which teams kind of you know kind of snap up riders before the classics before they sort of get results. I mean, I, I know I wrote today that Tom Pidcock is out of contract next year which which is true which is accurate likelihood would be that ineos would would keep him and um, they're definitely in the driving seat but um you never know there's a couple of bike brands that obviously want him for you know commercial reasons that he's one of only maybe three or four riders in the world that can you know ride on cross ride mountain bike and ride road and 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 do it all successfully. Uh, you know Vanderpoel's one, and uh, Wavrinot is the other, but they're both tied in for long-term contracts. So, um, yeah, it's it's going to be a strange market in that sense. And, and normally you also get you also get Patrick Lafaro with a big kind of big clear canvas in terms of what he wants to do in the market, and he doesn't really have that this year because he signed a lot of riders um, on two-year deals last year. So he's only got a certain amount of wiggle room. But there's plenty of teams there that have they're going to have really big churn. And you're looking at Israel, you're looking at of Soudal, Bike Exchange. I think they've got like 16 riders up for up for contract this year. So it's going to be a pretty intense market. And just speaking to teams and riders in the last few days, or teams and agents, rather, in the last few days, it's already kicking off. And it seems like it's getting earlier and earlier every year. So what you ha- what happens now is in January February is you get agents just sending off like ride PDFs of all their riders and all their achievements, and saying that this guy's out of contract, that guy's out of contract, and big long lists with like 20, 30 riders on them for each agent, and that seems to be happening earlier and earlier this year. So it's going to
0: be it's going to be intense. It's going to be fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You mentioned Patrick LeFevre. LeFevre, of course, being the long-term boss of QuickStep now, QuickStep Alpha Vinyl. So one of the the major drivers in the European peloton for sure. Uh, Ineos, yeah, it is surprising that they haven't locked down Pitcock. Olympic mountain bike world champion, recent cyclocross world champion, and a great shot at winning even more big uh, road titles this year. But uh, yeah, I guess time will tell what they do there. Is Ennio still the dominant player, the biggest spender? Um, I just want to talk a bit about money, if you could, you know, because it seems like he or she with the, the biggest purse often can win uh, in this sport of, of hiring the biggest riders. So two questions. One is, is Enios the biggest spending team? Uh, and then what, what is the salary range these days for riders, bottom to top?
1: Oh, oh, good question on salary range. Uh, uh, you know, I think, you know, you're looking at for your pidcocks of the world anywhere between right now, four to maybe six million euros, roughly, give or take. I think it's interesting in terms of, you know, you asked the question, are Enios the big big spenders. I mean, historically, yeah, like you go back maybe four or five years and they were the team that would pay the most. I think that's kind of spread out a little bit now with a few, with a bit more parity. You've got, you know, if you've got UAE that have entered the fold, Yumbo have got way more investment than they have, you know, 10 years ago. So there's maybe two or three teams that are right at the top in terms of the pecking order, in terms of their finance you go down a little bit further and there's a pretty big gap between them and you know middle of the rank world tour teams and then some of the teams that are you know just kind of holding their own at, at that level. But it's definitely a case of Ineos are still able to match and provide big salaries if and when they need to, but they're definitely not alone. I think a good example with that would be I won't name the rider for example, but one rider left their ranks end of last year and yeah, he got a huge offer from a rival, one of the teams I've just mentioned. Um, and I think Ineos just looked at it and said, well, we, we, we could match it, but it's a really good offer. And, you know, we can probably invest that somewhere else in the team with, with someone a bit younger. So they've definitely got the capabilities. I mean, they, they had Chris Green for a number of years and he was one of the best paid riders in the world. Geron Thomas is probably, you know, he's re-signed over the winter. He's not, I would have thought on the same salary he was on when he was you know a Tour de France bona fide contender. Not saying he can't have won it again, but you know, it's been a about three, three, four years since he did win it. So they're definitely able to compete with um the with the the top teams. You, know, you look at Luke Platt, for example, he signed a pretty big contract considering he's not really raced in Europe yet. Um, but there's other teams on the on the on that kind of same kind of Pecking order or level playing field as it comes to when it comes to finance, and it's pr- primarily UAE and Yumbo Visma.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, finances aside, let's let's talk firepower in the the races, particularly the stage races. It seems like Ineos and Yumbo Visma have been going head to head. Juro, Tour de France in particular. Obviously, you know, Egan Bernal had a terrible crash. He's in a, in a bad way. What do you expect to see? uh in the in the grand tours between those two teams and is it is it too simplified to see it as a competition between Enios and yumbo
1: ah i mean tour de france is is, i mean nothing's ever nailed on or certain but it looks like Pogachar with uae he's gonna win the next two or three tour de Frances. Uh, even to the point where you speak to a couple of team managers now and they're thinking is it really worth going into the market and spending one, two million on a Tour de France rider when you know that they're not going to win and you know that the podium is going to be probably, unless there's a major incident, out of reach. Is mm-hmm. it better that I put my money into the classics or is it better if I put you know, my money into riders that in maybe five years or four years are going to be Tour de France contenders? Um, because running eighth or tenth at the Tour for me is not going to get me the return on investment or you know, a huge amount of points in terms of the World Tour. So I think looking at it from the Tour de France angle, is, is, the, is, is well ahead of, of, of the opposition. Mm. Obviously, you don't know what's going to happen, crashes, illnesses. You know, we just saw today that you know, had COVID and that can, that can strike at any time with any team and any rider. A month ago, I'd say Ineos were pretty close in that they got... Bernal and carapaz and obviously you know you don't want to speculate too much on banal and when his comeback will be and you know what that road or path looks like but it's obviously very difficult at this point to say you know he's going to be on the start line in the tour de france the, the main thing is of course you just want him to be healthy and that he can at some point um find a way back to the level he was at but it's um it's going to be a, a long road for him obviously but then you know Carapaz is a, a decent rider for the Giro. I think he's probably one of the favourites there. And, and the big decision for Ineos is going to be over the next month or two. And they've kind of addressed it a little bit in the media already: is do we keep with that plan A of Carapaz for the Giro, a race he's won before, or do we de- move him over to the Tour, where he won't, he won't, he's not going to be a, he's not going to be a favourite, and he's been on the podium before, but the amount of time travelling there it's going to be very, very difficult. So do they kind of say to themselves and be pragmatic? Well, let's definitely kind of shore up the Giro. And and, and again, it's an unpredictable race, but but go there as one of the big favorites. And then maybe test some other riders at the tour, maybe giving Thomas another, another crack at it, or maybe saying to the younger riders, you know, okay, we haven't done this. We've never done this, but let's just go in there and hunt stages. I don't know whether they'll be able to do that mentally or whether or not they'll be able to kind of shift that gear. But now, they've still got riders that are capable of getting results in the tour de france for sure but i think the win was probably out of their reach and then you look at jumbo visma they look stacked for both the here and now and the future with with roglic obviously he can win a grand tour he's won three grand tours in the last three years with three 12 wins they've got Vingergaard, who's an up-and-coming rider who you know you don't know how he's going to fare in that kind of big second season when all the pressure's on but He looks like he's very much capable of at least repeating a a podium performance. And even UAE, they've invested heavily over the winter, both in terms of stacking up that sprint train or the the sprinters that they've got with Ackerman to kind of complement with Kaviria, but also in terms of just supporting... um, supporting Pogacar so they put in Bennett and a couple of other riders and of course they put in Almeida too so and that's going to make a big difference in terms of their their GC aspirations spread across three grand tours but those three teams are you know going to decide a lot of stage races over the next you know 12 months 24 months for sure.
0: Yeah yeah it's embarrassing admission omission on my part not to throw UAE there at the the front of that question. I'm
1: yeah, I'm sure I've missed, I'm sure I've missed someone off of the of the UAE roster
0: too Yeah, but yeah, well, yeah well, Pogachar is such an incredible writer, obviously and it seems like you know he could win almost with any any team that he came to the Tour with and and the early iterations of UAE were perhaps unfairly thrown under the bus as, as not being up to snuff but uh you know with like I say with an enhanced roster this year it's almost case closed for Pogacar barring Something going horribly wrong?
1: Yeah, I th- I think so. And normally I kind of sit on the fence about these things because I remember when Bernal won his first tour and everyone thought hey, he's going to win five in a row. And it just doesn't always work out that way. In the same way, you know, you go back, you know, 20 years, everyone thought Jan Ulrich, he won the tour by like what nine minutes in mm-hmm. 2000, or 2000, 1997. And everyone and thought, it's he's it. going to be the next." Yeah, and, and yeah, and everyone thought he's going to be the next Eddie Merckx, and he, he never won another tour again. So you never you never know, and there's always going to be another Pogacar at some point. So and you don't know when that ride is going to break through, and it could even be this year. So it, it's always difficult to say, and there are always riders on the kind of we haven't mentioned, like you know, what Simon Yates going to do this year? Is he going to finally going to crack um, crack it and win the Giro? Like it's not out of the realms of possibility. Is a rider like Am gonna get back to his best? Could we see, you know, uh, another rider from another team, another team, sorry, just kind of step up with a big result. So there'll always be surprises for sure. But from a UA perspective, it's if you just look at their pure recruitment, they've done a really good job. Like I was speaking to a rival team boss just last night about it, and you can't fault them. And I know they've got a lot of money and 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 it's easy to say, oh, they just throw their money around and, and they get who they want. But they've really gone and identified young talent in a really strong way. You know, whether it's McNulty or Berg or Oliveira brothers or Fisher Black, that they picked up last year from Youngbo Visma. They've really done a good job on that on that on that um, that front too. So it's not all about Pogacar. They've they've
0: recruited well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now let's, let's talk early season races. You know, everybody loves the tour, as you mentioned, the classics, but uh, there's, you know, bike racing's going on right now. Are early season races worth watching? Daniel Benson? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love the early which, season which, races. W- mean, which ones and, and why? Why why should we be paying attention now? I mean, look, I mean, you've obviously got a couple of races that are going on right now or about to start. You've had
1: Bessege. Um, I mean, the, historically, you know, okay, we're missing San missing the tour down under which i know isn't always everyone's favorite race but i thought it was one of the best early season races going Saint louis isn't on the calendar anymore but it's kind of shifted a little bit because of the cancellation of those races you get a really good field at Bessage and provence where a lot of classic riders and grand tour riders are kind of mixing it so you get your Pinos and your Pedersons and your quintanas and, and so on and so forth and, and those races are really intriguing because you get to see who's like who's who's had a really good winter Who's a little bit behind who's kind of in new kit and 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 doing well like you see with Dylan Groen and Megan winning a couple of stages in the Saudi tour like a week ago and all of a sudden the, the kind of momentum builds but I love this kind of like run into the into the classics and I, I, you know, opening weekend is in a couple of weeks time now that's that's one of my favorite kind of blocks there because you mm-hmm. get such you get such incredible performances. You get the first real proper sight of cobbled racing for the first time in a season. So yeah, there's a lot to look out for in the early season races. I know it's not all about grand tours and so on and so forth, but um, yeah, there's a lot there for sure.
0: Now, how about this? You, you've been covering bike races for two decades. You've been to world championships. You've been to the Tour, the Giro, the Vuelta, the Olympics, uh, one-day one day races, one-week stage races. If someone could go to just one bike race on the planet which one would you recommend as a fan as a fan of the sport uh, putting you on this, putting you on the spot here
1: a a one day a one day race or a stage race
0: Uh, well let's let's do one day race for now
1: Uh, I mean I'd say I'd say I'd say Flanders I'd say Flanders you
0: answered correctly
1: yeah thank you very much (laughs) I mean I'm always I'm always on, I'm always team Flanders over team Roubaix 100% 100% um yeah, always been that case. Even with the kind of course modifications and so on and so forth, just the atmosphere within Belgium and the fans that you get there, and the mystique and the, the everything that you come and kind of get with it. I mean, I, I've never been to, I've never been to a race as a fan actually. To come think of it, um, but I've never been to a race where you, where I've been able to kind of ride my bike and experience the cobbles and that kind of side of things. It's always for the journalists. It's like go to the start annoy riders go to the press room <laughs> eat, eat, eat too many sandwiches go to the finish annoy more riders go back to the press room and write everything up that's pretty much that's pretty much all you get to do I mean, i'm not complaining but yeah as a fan i think from an atmosphere atmospheric point of view flanders for me would be the one race i'd love to go to and just enjoy the day i think yeah and then from a stage race point of view i'd say we i love i prefer i don't maybe i want to say this but i prefer covering the week-long stage races because you just the grand tours are really intense and really hard and uh and you know this too, like you can go to the tour de france as a journalist and this is probably um you can go to the tour de france and you can not ask a single question right you can just go to the tour de france as a journalist and follow the pack and just write up what you get in the press conferences and you can do a really good job that way whereas if you go to the week-long stage races things are a bit more relaxed the access historically you know, pre-COVID a bit more um it's a bit easier to get coverage you can kind of think about the stories that you want to do so I, my favorite race from a week point of view used to always be things like roman d and the dauphiné because you get all the incredible stars without the intensity of the tour de france and you get time with them and you get to ask questions and you kind of generate unique content which is very different at the tour where it's just not, you know, not complaining about the tour but it's just far more intense more intense on that footing so if you're going to go to a stage race as a fan i'd i'd say go to something like go to something like paranise or go to something like the dauphine for
0: sure mm-hmm. for, yeah, for some of the sim- similar reasons it's still you know spectacular racing hard racing best stars in the world but a uh, little 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 higher uh, access to brain damage ratio as far as like getting around or getting getting close to getting close to the stars
1: yeah, or, or the Giro. The Giro is a wonderful Grand Tour. I never I've never had the chance to really cover that properly, but um you get to experience obviously Italy and the food and the culture and um still get taken a grand tour. So you get yeah, three weeks of incredible racing and incredible scenery, yeah, depending on where the where the race goes, but almost everywhere in Italy really. So yeah, the Giro for me is also another another good one.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's that's certainly my pick just on food alone. Yeah,
1: yeah, It's a good shout. It's a good shout.
0: Women's racing. Uh there's more of it than there used to be. Uh, it's still f- not a parity with, with men's racing. What have, what have been some of the, the gains recently that uh, are encouraging to you? And, and what would you still like to see? You know, we had the Paris Roubaix Femmes finally for the first time last year, which was awesome. Um, yeah, it was a great race. Now the course is, is stepping up for this year. What's, what are you seeing as uh, encouraging for the women's world tour peloton? I think, you know, obviously
1: you get um, the, the calendar's bigger and better than ever before. You've got the Tour de France, the Women's Tour de France, which is back on the calendar. I think the, the biggest change that I've noticed in the last 15 to 20 years is just the attitude towards women's racing and the improved coverage. I think um, there's lots more that can be done because, um, you yeah, know, there isn't obviously parity in a number of different a number of different levels but for me yeah the the biggest positive has just been the attitude towards women's racing um from the cycling media and um how much more investment and um coverage is provided i mean i I can talk about you know where i was at before with cycling news but every year we would always have a conversation about how much more investment we could put into women's cycling and then what kind of coverage plans could beef up for the following season and um you know that was always on the in the back of my mind in terms of what, what we should be doing from a um coverage standpoint and what the you know what the what the what the audience and fans in terms of you know, what they deserve which is you know they want more content so we've got to we've got to provide it for them um i think the yeah the other big changes, the um the the size of the the pool of athletes, like the, in terms of the talent there, it's a lot, a lot deeper than it used to be. You go back 10, 15 years ago, even four or five years ago. And what I really like about um in terms of being on the ground and covering women's races, is I was at the women's tour last year in the UK, and that was actually the first proper race I've been at for two years. And I was talking to Audrey Cordon about it, uh, and she was making the point, and I'll kind of paraphrase it, but you know. The women's athletes, are, you know, in, in terms of teams of and peloton and, and the riders, they've got some really incredible stories there. And they're, at, they're I'd say, and I don't know if you agree with me, but on the whole, the athletes in the women's peloton are a lot better at, at telling those stories and sharing those stories because they've just had very different pathways into the sport. They understand and really value the um, worth of media attention that can bring both them and their sponsors um, they kind of just maybe get it a little bit more, uh, because I know how hard it is to kind of break through and the challenges and the kind of um, obstacles they have to face in order to get to that level. Um, but for me, I mean, in terms of plans for Vella News, I mean, we want to we want to increase our women's coverage like, right from the get go. And that means, you know, more stories, more race reports, m- more photos, more bikes, more galleries and um, more stories from women's gravel races um more female voices on the site telling stories about women's cycling um yeah you know, i've definitely noticed that you know that's uh, another area where there has been some definite improvements i think there's some incredible um email journalists out there writing about cycling and um i think as a media outlet we can only do more to encourage the give a platform to those voices to kind of, so they can get an opportunity to get into the press room.
0: Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, Velenos is in its 50th year now. It's been anchored in the U S looking at Europe, often traveling to Europe to, to cover the heart of professional bike racing. Uh, many of our writers and editors over the years have been American. We've had many Brits uh, like John Wilcoxon, most notably was a, an anchor of, of the brand for years um, it turns out Americans and Brits don't always see eye to eye on everything. So I'm curious about uh, your perspective uh, on riders and any differences you see in, in British riders versus American riders. I know that's a it's a pretty open ended question, but as far as far as how they uh, interact within the peloton.
1: Wow, that's a really big question. I'm trying to think of all the riders that I've um, got on with or haven't got on with over the years. I don't think there's a no matter what the nationality (laughs) they don't like me (laughs) um yeah the united front on that on that scene um yeah I, i i don't think there's a huge a huge difference in terms of their outlook on a number of different aspects i've never had an issue with um a rider based on where they're from and i think vice versa i think that um
0: yeah but what, can you give an example? Sure. Let me, let me put, put it in a different way. You know, often uh, you know people like Alan Lim or other physiologists will cite the cultural changes as being uh, quite you know more important than are given credit for when you know riders travel around the world to race, and that yes, there's the physiological demands of the race itself, but then there's just the stress of trying to adapt to a new culture, and that can also be that can be a, a bit of a hurdle. Um, I was wondering, if, like, if that's less the case for Brits. You know, sometimes there's a language barrier, but it's you know, geographically closer to mainland Europe, or or if it's still like, yeah. You know, so are Brits, you know, closer to the to the, the Dutch and the Belgians, and culturally, or or is it more like are they more outsiders still? I realize that's yeah. Changing.
1: I I don't I don't I I don't think it, you can kind of lump them in into those kind of categories. I think from a. a a wider perspective it very much comes back to how much support you've got so i know you know there are there are american riders that will come over to europe and find it a lot harder being away from home and and that, sometimes that's down to the fact that they're there for the whole year right they're in in a foreign country for a whole season and they may not have traveled abroad that much in the past they may have come over for the odd race for the odd camp whereas i think if you look at the especially the last 10 years with, with what british cycling has done and now with them with sky and then with Ineos, it was a lot easier for a british team of that nature to develop young riders and um bring them into the fold that came into the european culture because they could do it together whereas with the american teams it was slightly different because they were almost a little bit more internationalized um and you know if you look at the high road days you know very early on and you look at the the um the slipstream days very on they were very much stacked with a lot of veterans and then the odd one or two riders who were a bit younger from from north america um but if you go back like 20 30 years before sky before you know big investment it was very different and and very very difficult for some you know british riders to make it and you remember like the acbb days where you know um a couple of riders would go over for a couple a year or two And it was very much sink or swim. And I think maybe it's a little bit like that for some of the North American riders, although, you know, the technologies change, You're able to get home a little bit more uh, during the season. You can FaceTime home and so on and so forth. So you're maybe not less, you're a bit less homesick. Um, But I think the cultural difference as a whole between the Brits and the Americans and the Australians too, the English-speaking language countries, New Zealand as well, Canada, you know, they're very much, I'd say, on, on the same kind of wavelength, I guess.
0: Okay, I want to jump back to something you said about British and American writers disliking you equally. You know that's somewhat self-deprecating, but yeah, I want to dig into that because you, know, you have extensive contacts throughout the peloton, and you talk to a lot of people, whether they're racers or or director sportives or team sponsors. Ex- explain that that statement. Do do you writers sometimes get irritated with you because you're so tenacious in your job, or what's what's behind that remark?
1: Oh, I can give you so many anecdotal <laughs> stories on that one as a podcast all in itself. I made Greg Van Avermaet angry. That's how no one makes Greg Van Avermaet angry. And I mean, I kind of made that in a nice possible way. I remember um, I went to a Tour de France press conference like years ago. I think he just announced he'd signed for CCC. And I asked him when he signed his contract. And he didn't really enjoy the press conference. He didn't give me a... Um, and by the way, I've got a huge amount of respect for Greg Van Avermaet. He's a great interview. He's a um, wonderful athlete. And I have a huge amount of time for him. And I've interviewed him plenty of times since. But in this one particular instance, I think he got a little bit irritated with me for trying to dig into the contract issue. And then um I remember a Belgian journalist coming up to me afterwards and saying, Oh, you made you made Greg Van Averma angry. No one's ever made him angry before. And I, was <laughs> like, I was so embarrassed. But I think like um it's part of the course, like in the sense of um if you're a journalist occasionally like you're going to rub people up the wrong way because you you ask questions that they don't like and uh i mean i can oh gosh i can think of plenty of examples whereby it's um wiggins or rowan dennis or i um, trying to think of a couple of american riders um tom danielson where you've kind of written things about them that they haven't particularly liked but at the end of the day you're not really a press officer for them you're there to report on what you see and your take on situations and and so on and so forth and you know you can't you know you can't let opinions or um what you what people think of you get in the way of of hard facts and i think as a journalist i I probably you know built some really good bridges with like i know some riders over like with mutual trust and respect and You know, never give away your sources and so on and so forth. But, you know, I remember um, I remember a story I broke about a rider changing teams in 2014 from Garmin to BMC, I think it was. And that rider was so angry that he's never spoken to me since I wrote that story, even though the story was absolutely accurate and 100 percent on the money and um, he, uh, he hasn't forgiven me since then but it's it's par par for the course you know you're not here to be a press officer or um you know write content that just the riders and the teams were like you're here to kind of give fans and readers a real insight and analysis of what the what the sport is really like and occasionally yeah that is going to um that is going to lose you access even yeah you know, I've I've definitely lost access over the years to to teams and riders at certain points um sometimes that's mendable and bridgeable and fix fixable um, and sometimes it's not but when you're writing a story more often than not you can't really think about the that kind of aspect if it's truth and if it's legitimate you just I'm sure you know too you just you've got to get it out there right
0: yeah I was going to ask how you balance those two things of access, you know, it's not so much wanting to come across as flattering, but one thing that's always in the back of your mind is, as you said, is access. Like if this team stops talking to me, that's (laughs) not going to make the job more difficult. Yes. I mean, or, or or do you just approach it as you're going to write the story as you best see fit and let the chips fall where they may?
1: Yeah. I think that, I don't know whether my attitude to that has changed over the years
0: because,
1: um, I've seen what, how quickly, um, things can break and how quickly they can men- be mended, but be fixed again. I remember, remember once speaking to a rider, a British rider. I said to him, "Look, and we had at one point we didn't get. He had an issue with something that the, the publication I worked for had written. Whether it was me, I can't even remember. And then, you know, a couple of years later, things were fine. And I remember saying to saying to that rider once, like, there's going to come a point when I or someone on my team writes something that you don't like, and when that happens, you need to tell me and not like. Re, like revoke all access. Needless to say they revoked all access as soon as they <laughs> as soon as we wrote something that they didn't like. But I mean I, I'm i never that I don't think I've ever been that bothered about access too much because it, it at the end of the day, you're you're not there just to serve serve a team or a rider. And more often than not, you you can write about someone. It's better to write about someone without the access, you know, because you can write about them with any kind of concern or hesitancy when it comes to oh will this get me another interview um and you know there there were years when you know you know some of the biggest writers in the world wouldn't talk to the publication or me that i was that that i was working for and it didn't make any difference in terms of access because i was still able to go to press conferences i was still able to see what they were doing it just meant that every now and then i wasn't getting a wasn't getting fed a interview or a little bit of insight, and yeah, that that's great for for clicks or whatever. But at, at some point or other, but invariably, it can also it can also be used against you. So I try not to, and, and you know, in the past, and, and you know, really care about access too much. It's um, it's one of those things. I like think if you think about it too much, it just kind of hampers you from doing what you're there to do, which is you know be a journalist
0: i appreciate that you know as a, as a journalism school kid from back in the day you know it reminds me of you know one of the, the founding tenets of the new york times adolph folks the the publisher late 1800s you know just stated the mission as to give the news impartially without fear or favor and and there and there it was like regardless of any party sector interest involved but you know it's the same same principles apply in in bike racing
1: i think yeah i think they're really um what you just said was like a really great obviously the standard that every journalist wants to kind of aspire to i'm trying to think of other anecdotes where like you know access has been helpful and doors have been opened for you as a journalist but i'm struggling to think of them i, I, I more often think of the times when i know that i'm not gonna not gonna get not gonna get a story i mean i can think of a resource actually i remember um, a team manager uh and we had this argument recently again like on the phone when I was writing about um his team unable to uphold um their responsibilities should I say in terms of riders and, and their argument was oh we're on the same page we're on the same team and you know this story coming out now is it's not good it's not a story and my response to that was like we're not on the same page and we're not on the same team <laughs> uh-huh. like I'm not here to to write PR for you and they just didn't didn't get it. most team bosses do get it like they they understand that like you're going to come to them with questions that that you probably don't want them to write about, and they'll either give you a no comment or they will give you a comment and and that's it. It's just a professional kind of exchange of exchange of information um but yeah there 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 have definitely been times when you're kind of pressured into pressured into aspects but um yeah I'm stumped for for more anecdotes um in terms of where that's been where that's been an issue
0: yeah but sticking with the story results and the best end result for for readers i believe so
1: yeah and in some instances it i'm trying to think about i remember when the whole um armstrong stuff was kind of blowing up and um i remember being at the london olympics in 2012 and uh i sat down i think that yeah values were there and um in this kind of almost like little room under the velodrome and Pat McQuaid was going to give a press conference to a few people and Verbier I think there was his I think was it Verbier, Verbiste, I think, Verbiste, I think was the the legal guy at the UCI at the time and they were both there and um, a couple of us were really giving Pat McQuaid like a hard time with some really difficult questions about Armstrong and stuff that he'd said and and vice versa about yeah how I he'd mean, like Treated Armstrong and with him as favouritism, and I could just see like the the press officer's face, like at the UCI at the time, just kind of sink. Like, well, what is going on here? Like, we've given access, we've we've given like Daniel Benson and a couple of other journalists like the chance to interview Pat and get information and, and write a story. And yeah, it definitely wasn't a favourable or friendly atmosphere in that room. And afterwards, the press officer was like, "What do you This isn't great. This isn't what we what we thought it would be." And kind of certain Pat was fuming he was really angry since then you know seen him plenty of times and you know it's, it's all fine he kind of understood what you're what you're there to do what your job was but yeah access has always been something that you know it's it's good for the reader in one sense but it, you can't really let it hold you back in terms of what you need to do and the stories that you need to publish
0: let's take it back a different direction how did you first get into the sport and into journalism
1: um, I watched the Tour de France on television, like a lot of people, and um, just fell in love with cycling. Really, don't know what it was about it, really, that kind of stuck out. Maybe it was, part of it was just like the vibrancy and the colour, and seeing all this kind of suffering and all this cheering in the mountains, and people just kind of just absolutely sacrificing everything they had to get to the pinnacle and the top, and just thinking it was just um, really inspiring, really. Yeah, and then I said, right, I realised I was terrible at riding a bike. I was too slow, too useless, too untalented and not hungry enough or determined or um, didn't have the bravery to really commit to it and was just a normal teenager that wanted to do normal teenager things, you know, so um, that quickly faded. But at the same time, I loved writing and thought that I could make it maybe as a journalist do, writing about sport. And then I did work experience every summer, every opportunity I could get when I was like 15, 16, working at Cycling Weekly and did a bit of stuff for the Daily Telegraph for their tour coverage when I was like 17 or 18. And uh, a a website called Bike Magic, which I don't think exists anymore. I did some Tour de France for them. And then I graduated and couldn't get a job in cycling. So I went into running. I worked for Runner's World at Rodale for a couple of years. And then the cycling news job came along and um, I jumped at that. Um, and then that was a really big transition because I went from being kind of a bit of a fan and didn't know what the, what on earth I was doing for like the first 13 and a half years. <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe not, well that's um, not true, but yeah. But, but didn't know what I was doing for a very long time, and very quickly had to learn not to be not to be the fan I was, so ended up just thinking just about you know what the stories were, what was important, ethics around the sport and also kind of and then the, the big challenge was like balancing that with like what are the what's going to improve the website what's going to drive traffic and I remember things i'm not a fan anymore when i'm at a finish line at uh luchon for example and it's Dan Martin against Jakob Fuglsang in the tour and I want Dan Martin to win. Not because I like Dan Martin and don't like Jakob Fuglsang, or whatever. I want Dan Martin to win because I, I work for an English speaking language website and that's an American <laughs> team. And that's gonna that's gonna that's gonna drive the traffic more than if Jakob Fuglsang wins this tour stage. Thankfully Dan Martin wins the stage, so it's all good. But um yeah, so that's kind of how I got into it. But um yeah, I kind of knew pretty early on that I wanted to write about cycling and um Combine a passion for the sport with just, um, not having a normal nine to five job, basically.
0: Obviously most, all the times you're watching bike racing now is in a work capacity. Do you ever feel the, that sense of inspiration in watching bike racing the way you did when you were a teenager or is it just the, okay, what's, what's the outcome for the, for the most page views here and hoping for that?
1: Oh, uh, no, you still get you still get a kick when it comes to like you know you, you're watching like four or five riders hit the hit a velodrome together in Parry Bay or it doesn't really happen very often. You know Matt Hamer maybe, um, or if like it's the Tour of Flanders and there's two or three riders left, or if it's the I don't know the Olympic road race and uh, it's coming down to like four or five riders and you don't know who's going to win or the World Championships. There's there's still also maybe in the one-day races where things are a little bit more unpredictable and, and and not so telegraphed but yeah you still get that you still get a bit of a buzz yeah for sure like you wouldn't I don't think you'd do it otherwise um and it's it's still an incredible sport right even though like I look at it more through metrics and audience and all that kind of stuff I still get uh of satisfaction from seeing not just winners right just like really good interesting stories like one of the stories i really like working on last year was nothing to do with men's or women's world tour. it was about a 19 year old rider called carolyn reza resin sorry in the us who'd had like two races under her belt and gravel and it uh, was new to it. it was like still in college like completely new to new to bike racing but just had a really good story about how she got into the sport um, and the riders she was going up against some of whom were like you know really decent world world-class cyclocross riders who were riding gravel at the time and that was a real kind of kickback to you know why I got into cycling to kind of tell some stories and you know and share like a bit of insight and a bit of a narrative with with the readers that they might not norm- normally see so yeah there's lots of stories that I I've of light covering and a light covering, and yes, yeah, so I, yeah, I think I still get that buzz. It, it may just be through a different lens than it was like twenty years ago, but I'm I'm still shocked. I still, yeah, stuck stuck with liking something for so long because usually <laughs> I lose interest in in hobbies and stuff I have pretty quickly. But um, no, yeah, still have a a very big um heart for the sport. It's just that it's maybe modified and a bit more um, senior than it was like
0: twenty or 20 years ago. Sure, sure. Yeah, cycling for me remains a an unending source of of interest and inspiration. It's a, a great way to travel the world either literally going to bike races or just uh figuratively through the the work of other people. So I've certainly en- enjoyed reading your writing over the years and working with uh, you in press rooms over the years and now just I'm very grateful to to have you on the the Velo News team.
1: No, I'm I'm i genuinely like what's really exciting in the moment is um it's just been part of the values team and, and just getting started like it's only been three days and i won't lie i am i am exhausted <laughs> like <laughs> it's 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 been it's been such a huge shift for me in terms of personal level and a professional level but um i've loved every minute of it and it feels like almost like a completely different challenge and like i've wound the clock back by like 10 years and almost this benjamin button moment where i'm just getting a little <laughs> bit younger rather than older and it's you know working with new people working with a new company you know, everything's been very welcoming and um it's it's been it's been great fun so far and i'm sure that's going to continue but um yeah I, I i still have a i still have a huge respect for um cycling as a whole and um athletes that are out there doing their jobs and um yeah i'm, I'm looking forward to the looking forward to the year ahead
0: Daniel Benson, the new VeloNews editor-in-chief. It's 10 p.m., so we will bid you a good night, sir. Thank you for your time, oh, and we will look forward to much more good stuff to come on VeloNews.com. That's great. That's great. Cheers. I'm your host, Ben Delaney, and I thank you, as always, for listening to the VeloNews Podcast.